0: Hey, everyone, we have a super exciting episode today. It is very relevant in the context of what's happening in our world right now. I do want to take a moment and pointedly say that Stable Moments stands in solidarity with the Black community and Black Lives Matter. So for today, This episode we speak with Erica Shubin. Now she is a white mom but she has adopted black kids and she talks about her experience doing that and what that was like for her family but also her first time experiencing racism with her kids and the police and what that was like for her. It's not very often that white people get to be in such proximity to racism and actually feel the effects of it. So I thought her perspective was really helpful uh, to understand uh, what it's like for this mom to have to raise her black children alongside her white children and what she has learned from that experience. So I think it was super informative, and I will just let her do the talking because she does a great job. All right, here we go. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma from foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond. We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Well, thank you so much, Erica, for being on the podcast today. I know that you've got an amazing story and a good perspective to give to our audience, especially during the times right now. So I thought it was really important to have you on. And I'm so grateful that you have joined us. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the world of adoption.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's um, just my first podcast, a little bit different, but I'm excited to be here. Let's see, I am a mom to five amazing kids, married to my high school sweetheart, and we currently live in Colorado, but have lived in Oregon, Arizona, and Florida before this. Um, The world of adoption, let's see. I was a nanny for a family that adopted three of their four children, and I would take care of the other kids while um, they were off in other lands, Um, picking up their kids. And so I get to see firsthand what that looked like and how they integrated children into their family. And we had a couple other friends that had adopted and I tried to convince my parents to adopt and that just didn't happen. So I was pretty convinced that I wanted to adopt from a pretty young age. Um, When my husband and I got married very young, um, we started our family also very young And it wasn't until I was almost 30 that it really actually came to fruition and my husband was on board. And in 2008, we adopted our three-year-old son, Silas, which kind of just, we dove headfirst into the culture of Ethiopia and the Ethiopian community, the Black community. And at the time we lived in Arizona. So that just kind of it just happened it was natural it wasn't um something that we really had to feel like we needed to um work super hard at we loved that community and there was a pretty big ethiopian community and it just kind of flowed over into the black community um just culturally just ethiopians are very welcoming and so it just worked for us and then in 2011 we adopted our daughter Because honestly, we just, we could give Silas a whole lot and we could give him, you know, the world, so to speak, but we could never be black. Mm. And so that was a really big piece for us. And that's a really tough thing. I think sometimes it was really hard for me to talk about because I didn't know how that would be perceived or if that was an appropriate thing or an appropriate reason to want to adopt again. But um, we were honest with our social worker, and she said, if that's the only reason, she said, I'll preview today. So it became and has become a much bigger piece than we um, could have ever imagined. Their relationship is unprecedented, and it's something that um, honestly makes me cry, because if we didn't adopt Zara, what that would look like for Silas. Um, So... It's been really neat for our family to figure out the racial integration piece and how that works for us. And being honest about that is important, I think. So that's a really long answer for a very short question. Well, it was
0: was a big loaded question. Um, (laughs) No, well, well, that's great. So tell me a little bit more about how you came to realize that not being Black mattered to your son. And that representation mattered within your family because we hear all the time representation matters. And we heard from, um, I don't know if you follow Raising Cultures, um, but she is a woman on, she has a big Facebook following. She's a black woman that adopted a white baby. She's also adopted other children of different races, but uh, she's gotten a lot of like, why would you adopt a white baby? And you should help your own. And just and a lot of white people calling, saying you've stolen this baby. And like the cops coming. Oh wow! And like she's a therapist. Her her husband's um, a police officer, and they're an awesome family. And they they have a very cool page where they go live like every day and show their just their family happenings. But she was telling. What
1: is it called again? You'll have to link me that because I want to I want to watch that. Yeah, it's
0: raising culture. She is so okay. Just real um and like you feel comfortable asking any questions which I think is really important right now and any time huge and uh she you know she talked about how representation mattered and you know if you're white and you have a, a black kid or just making sure that they see somebody that looks like them like she said that she went to an all black church before she had this white baby and they switched church so that they would have some white representation while he was growing up but I hadn't thought about representation in, within your family. So can you tell me a little bit more about like how you came to understanding representation mattered, even within your family for your son?
1: Having him, we were pretty immersed in the Ethiopian culture in Arizona because there was a lot of adoptive families that had Ethiopian children. And then the Ethiopian community there really um, opened their doors to our our whole adoption group, it was quite phenomenal. They would host dinners for us. They would do celebrations. Um, It was just, it was so neat to just be a part of that. And so when we would watch him and how he would act there with, you know, other kids that looked like him with adults that looked like him, it was so obvious the connection and the Ethiopian culture is very um, loving and welcoming as it is, and so they um, he just kind of had that tendency anyways. And if you meet him, he's extremely gregarious. Sees the best in absolutely everything, and so just watching him, it was it was just obvious that he was a different person, and just so comfortable. And I mean, he's pretty, uh, you know. I guess he accommodates to any situation, but he just he thrived there. And so, um, it just was one thing that kind of we just talked about, and we thought we were done with four kids, two boys, two girls seems perfect. Um, my son had prayed for a brother, which is initially kind of what led us to adopt to begin with. Um, I had really tough pregnancies, so biological wasn't an option. And um, he just never gave up. He wanted. Uh, brother and I had always wanted to adopt so that just kind of made sense so a fifth child wasn't really um it wasn't in the plan so to speak but I think just the overwhelming obvious need for Silas to have someone that was like him and then I just felt a heaviness that when we were actually in country we went to his orphanage and there's a little girl and she just clung to me and my husband knelt down and he said we're not done yet are we and I said mm-hmm. So it, it kind of started when it got there, but it was just more confirming. Um, you know, the longer that Silas was home, just the need to just to have somebody that looked like him and Zara is the perfect caboose to our family and she um, is fiery and sweet and kind and loving and her and Silas just are they're super super tight.
0: So what do you feel like the difference is like were your biological kids was that transition pretty easy for them to accept new kids into the house to accept them as their siblings and For you, what role has race played in that as far as family conversations or different things that you would do differently if you, if you feel like you had adopted white kids out of state's custody, like what role has race played in, in adopting?
1: So I think, um, we have a little bit of a unique story in, with regard to that. We knew going in that we were, um, making some choices that may not be looked upon as positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact we didn't tell our family that we were adopting until we were approved and our home study was halfway done. I get it. <laughs> Mostly because um, my husband is full blooded Russian and in the Russian culture, you marry Russians marry Russians. Mm-hmm. And so his parents um left the really strict church part of it. So people had we I mean obviously I'm not Russian, so we um, they all married out, but crossing, uh, racial and cultural bounds was going to be another, another thing. So, um, while our immediate family is completely supportive and, um, loving and all of that, and in fact, everybody is on the outside. I know that it's, it's definitely a, it's not an easy topic to discuss even, even now, like it's not a, it's a tough one. And obviously um for us it's been a journey to get to the place where we are i was raised that you know love sees no color but my my dad had some some innuendos that he used that would not align with that belief system <laughs> um so it wasn't until you know honestly we adopted that i realized there was more it was actually our training classes, our adoption training classes that we went through, started that conversation, really, that it's not really a love sees no color thing. Mm. And so I think for us, we raised our kids that Jesus loves me this, I know. And also he loves all the little children of the world. And so for our kids and for us, it wasn't an issue at all. Now, were we nervous about teaching our kids the difference between black and white and all other races? Yeah, of course. And we've raised the kids, all of them equally with regard to um, how they're seen in our family and how we see them and how God sees them and how the world sees them from our perspective. Mm. But we've also had to be really honest about how the world sees them. And I think we have gone with the, we are raising strong black men and women. We're raising strong white men and women. Um, And also just, we're raising strong women and strong men, Mm -hmm. period. So while we have to talk about things with our Black children that we don't have to talk to our white children about, we do it in an all-inclusive way. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, we have to have these conversations with Silas that I don't have to have with Skylar because I don't worry about Skylar in the same ways that I worry about Silas. Mm-hmm. And, and also just having an open and honest conversation with all of the kids in general and so my bio kids are extremely protective like really protective um but likewise my son from ethiopia is very protective of all of his sisters even though he's the youngest boy so there's certain things that race skin color doesn't matter like the boys protect the girls just they just do And I would almost say sauce might be even a little bit more protective than Skylar, just different personalities or whatever, but it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, skin color. So I think there's things that we discuss openly that are just personality things. And then there's things that, because you, we are raising you to be a, you're going to be a black man. When you leave my house, you are no longer under the protection of our white privilege, to be honest. Like that's, And that's a rough, that has been a rough path to, to get to like as a family, just, you know, because it's so politicized and you have to separate the politics with the facts. Mm -hmm. And so when I think because of our story and when that actually happened, it was so eye opening for us Mm -hmm. because, um, I saw it in a way that I never had.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the, uh, the again the woman from Raising Cultures. Well, not only did she talk about this, but we had a white family on that had has adopted uh, black kids, and then we've had Raising Cultures on and there's a black family that uh, that raised uh, has a white son. And both families said that they had to prepare their extended family for like we are about to adopt somebody of a different race, and like the racist stuff isn't going, you know, for the white family, they said they had to, you know, tell grandma like the racism or racist stuff has got to stop or it won't be allowed in our home. And you know, Kia from Raising Culture said that she had to tell her mom, like, you're gonna love this white baby just like I love this white baby. And um, so both, regardless of which race they were, they the the families had to talk to their external families and say, like, yeah, this is this is what's gonna happen. And it, it kind of changed things a little bit in their dynamics as a whole which which was a great thing and and the other thing that you just brought up that reminded me of that Raising Cultures interview was Kia had said like yeah it's great black kids being raised by white families but at some point they're black in America yes so like if you haven't gotten them the representation and you haven't had those conversations and they haven't had a moment to um, understand all the dynamics that that means. Then, when they're you know alone in New York at college and they realize what it means to be Black in America, it can be traumatizing. Um, yes. So it's really your job to to prepare them as much as possible for that. And you know, hopefully we raise awareness within a community where that can lessen and lessen, which is what we're trying to do now. But so you just alluded to it. <clears throat> which is the story that you which is the reason why I reached out to you so it's the story that you shared on social media um the great post about you you experiencing the racism that your son and daughter experienced so can you tell us a little bit about that story
1: yeah um we lived in florida at the time and you know i say a fluent but it was it's a white community with decent amount of um diversity but still you know, a pretty, where there's money, there's just, you know, opinions or whatever. So I had had a thing about not wanting my kids to go door to door. I don't really like it for any of my kids, but I always let my kids do it. Like whether they were selling candy bars for school or, you know, whatever cookie dough or, you know, all the things that they do. But for my youngest two kids, um, I always made one of their older white siblings go with them. And not because I didn't trust them or think that they were responsible or anything like that. You know, there's a piece that for a while they were just little, but the other piece, even as they got older, when I would have let my other two go, um, I was concerned about their, their skin color and how, you know, what could happen. And so I was very cautious about that. Um, my husband probably thought I was a little bit too cautious, but, So the first time I let them go out and we would lived in the neighborhood for seven years at that point. So people knew our family and they went knocking on doors because my son, you know, little boys go through the desire to earn money and to work hard. And, you know, he, he wasn't getting enough work at home. And so, so he wanted, he really wanted to go out into the neighborhood and that's just how he's wired to um, and so a neighbor had encouraged him and he just could not let go of it. And so I finally relented and I said, that's fine. But you both have to go together and you have to stay together. And, you know, you knock on doors and if they're not home, then you leave. And, you know, just gave them some basic, for me, it was, I was preparing them for the world, but also because of their skin color. I was definitely, I was concerned. And how old were they? They were nine and 11. Okay. And, um, you know, it was, you know, it's a beachy town, you know what it's like, it's small. And, and it just, our neighborhood was, it seemed it's safe is how I, I thought at the time. And so um, I sent them out, they were gone for, you know, maybe 30 minutes and they came back and I was happy. And, you know, you know, everyone was excited and he, they didn't have any success, but they were talked to a few neighbors and it was a good experience for them. And so when the officer showed up at the door, it was like one of those, of course he is. Of course. Of course. I, I, I went against my gut. I let him go out. And so, you know, the first impression of coming around the corner and seeing his hand on his gun. And then as soon as he looked up and saw me that he takes it off, I'm like, immediately I was on, on edge. And, um, you know, my kids are super respectful. And so my son had answered the door. And you know, he asked me if I lived there. Well, yes. And he said, Well, have you seen anything suspicious in the neighborhood? No. Um, you know, it's July, it was hot. And he said, Well, does he, he live here? And he points to my son, and I said, Well, yeah, it's my son. And he said, Oh, he said, and you could tell he was fumbling. For words and um I, I think he I think he suspected that it was kind of a, a bogus call at that point anyways. But he just you know went on to question me and, and I questioned him as to what the deal was. You know, why how did you end up at my door? And that's part that I didn't share in the story just because it didn't fit in. But they had told him they told him where I lived. So they you know they knew mm-hmm. and um the accusation was that there was a robbery in progress. And I didn't, he didn't tell me that at the time I found it out later and that there was teenage kids. My kids are small. They're not big. (laughs) They were really little, but yeah, but, and, and they're small anyways. So they're small for their age. And I mean, even now at 15, my son is five, five. So They were little. (laughs) So it it turned into a decent conversation, but basically the accusations were that they were breaking into cars. And that was the concern. And some older ladies at the church had made the call because they'd seen them, um, told the officers that they were rattling doors and um, trying to get into cars, which my kids said they never touched cars. They opened a screen door um, because there was no doorbell and they, they just did it to knock on the door. But basically it was two older ladies that made a false report because they were black. And I mean, that's, that's the bottom line of it. The process of getting to that point, you know, me having to go find out on the police report, what was actually reported because the officer really didn't want to tell me and it was obvious. And so he just, you know, asked several questions, took my kids' names and ages. And in hindsight, I never would have given him that information. Um, I did have it redacted. So, you know, it's just, it, the whole thing was disconcerting because his demure changed when he saw me. So what if I had been black? Um, he didn't want to admit that it was a race issue, but when I pushed it, yes. So it, it, it was just not a, it wasn't a good feeling. And it took a long time to process that and to deal with the wounded hearts of my kids um cuz they heard it and i tried really hard not to make it sound like race in front of them but as soon as the door closed they burst into tears and they said that was because of the color of our skin mm. and so they knew it, you can't hide it so up until that point i feel like i had really protected them so to speak right wrong or otherwise but it was a gaping wound at that point that we had to address
0: yeah I feel like it's easy for white people to jump onto the police brutality uh, bandwagon, that that's the only problem here. Right. Um, And it takes accountability off us. We can just say, if we would just get the police right, then racism doesn't exist, I guess. (laughs) So (laughs) there's more to that. And having a whole system, obviously, in everything we see, right? In, in judicial system and right. healthcare and everything, we, we see a, a racist system. But also, if the community at large is going to be sending these calls in and they're going to sound like a robbery in progress, and a police officer is trained to show up to a robbery in process with expecting somebody to be armed or right. combative or whatever, then their training might say to be super aggressive when that's not what it is. It's not a robbery in progress. It's a kid asking if he can mow his
1: lawn. Well, they did a surround of our whole neighborhood. And that, I guess, normal, which makes sense because if there was a robbery in progress, they're going to want to protect the neighborhood, which makes sense. But that's not what was happening. (laughs) Yeah. So
0: how do we build awareness around this more, the community's responsibility on these calls? I don't know if you, I'm sure you've heard about um, Governor Cuomo was saying that making a racist 911 call is, he wants that to be illegal or offense you can get charged with.
1: Well, it's interesting because I, somebody had commented something to that effect on our story about, or they had reposted it. And I obviously I can't check all the reposts at this point, but I I was looking at first and somebody said, white older ladies, I'm talking to you. You could this is how little, this is how kids are murdered. And it was so pointed, but it really made me think that, you know, it's true. Don't make assumptions based on the color of someone's skin. And that goes for anything, you know? So if you're making an assumption, I mean, it was broad daylight. They were sitting in a church parking lot. We live two doors down from a church parking lot. If you know where we live, Why wouldn't you go talk to my kids Mm -hmm. versus just making a phone call? Hey, are you, you know, did you need something? Something so simple. And so when you, when you humanize humans, it makes a difference. And I don't know how to fix that other than something. The concern is by making a law of, oh, you can't make a racist phone call. What if somebody really wasn't being racist and they make the phone call and then it turns out to be nothing, but it could have been something. And I think that's the hard part is figuring out how to do that. Well, so I tend to be a little bit more on the human side Mm -hmm. of how do we bridge the gap? And I do think that it's an everybody thing. We all have to be willing to listen to each other. And I mean, there's a, there's a comment actually on my story that I'm going to address after this. And it's the first person of color that has said something that they took the story negatively, and that's the first. Everyone else has been white that has said that, and it's because they felt like I should share it immediately. And because I didn't, then I was basically holding out and not sticking up for people of color. So I want to hear that, but it's those kinds of things that make traumatized people not say anything. Mm-hmm. Because they don't know if they'll do it right and they'll don't know they don't know if they'll do it justice. and honestly, if I had written that post when it happened, it wouldn't have been what it was now mm-hmm. because I was angry and I had to work through and figure out my own my own privilege and I had to at that for me, I was my kids were my first priority, not social media. and so healing hearts and and working through that and then working through my own, parts and getting justice for my kids. So yeah, it wasn't a priority. Um, I do believe in there's a verse in the Bible that says for such a time as this, and I do believe that I don't think anything's wasted. Um, but yeah, I, I, I did have to find my voice. And I think that, that that's the part of listening from the, you know, the white people side to the people of color side is that we both have to listen to each other. And I think that that's something that, um, like be the bridge, they, I don't think white people have listened to black people for a very long time. So I think that we get to shut up and listen, Mm -hmm. but in order to build a community of people that see each other, I do think there's a time and a place that we have to listen to each other.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: Yeah. But I'm totally willing to listen first.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and, um, have you, have you read and Doyle's new book, Untamed? I don't know if you've heard of it. No, I haven't. Um, I've... she, yeah, it's like, it's a big buzz book right now, but there is a chapter in it. It's good. You should read it. It's, it would
1: be worth your time, but I've read her other stuff. So yeah, well,
0: this is probably, this is her being like, who, what was I thinking? Right. Writing those other books, but because she's her most authentic self now, I guess, uh, is kind of the point of being untamed, but she does have a, A chapter in there called Racists and it just talks about how she like came out to do this work and she was gonna like talk about this with her white audience and and, like she got called racist for thinking that she could teach this you know that she should really be passing people on to uh, black people that are already training on this and already talking on this and actually getting their perspective but she also acknowledges that just stepping out into this work you're going to be called racist, uh, you're going to be called out for your privilege. Like you're going to take some hits. And she said, it's really easy to just recoil into like our, our privilege is actually that we never have to say anything. You know, we can just recoil and right pretend that things don't exist. So she said, that's like the, the struggle of the work is like continuing to show up regardless of, of how many times what you kind of think. get shu- shut down. Yeah. So I thought that was good. And yeah, something else that you brought up, I agree with you that the first thing I thought of with the governor Cuomo thing was like, cool. I wonder what Erica thinks about that because you don't want people <laughs> scared to call Good. In a crime, and being completely honest, like my um, husband was a police officer in Atlanta for years, and Black Lives Matter, the first time Black Lives Matter really came on the scene, he was in Atlanta, and like the pressure was so strong that it was almost like we don't pull over black people. It was like we don't, yeah. and we don't enforce crime, we don't enforce law or whatever because we're nervous about this interaction. Um, And how it will be, you know, construed or whatever. So then you start doing a blind eye to, to crime. That's being done by certain people. So it's like, that's not the direction we want to go in. We do need to be able to, and I mean, even when you were talking about sending your son out and being like, well, you know, because of the color of your skin, you aren't saying this out loud, but in your head, you're thinking because of the color of your skin, I might not want to send you out. And then me, I'd be like, oh my gosh am I being, is that racist? Like you can't have the same experience that my kid can have because I'm overprotecting you because of the color of your skin. So I don't know. It's a
1: constant battle of, I mean, I think as a parent anyways, you have a constant battle of, oh, am I going to screw the kid up? Oh, am I going to do this right or wrong? And I think it's just extra stuff that you think about, especially as a white mom. I don't know. I mean, I think that's the part, like, I feel like, oh, now I see what black moms feel like mm. because it is you know the that's just the way that it is for them. Like there's not a you don't have the comparison of, oh well my white son I didn't have to do that. Well no, they just have black zones. And so I think that's been eye opening for me too is that this is just their normal. And so for me, that part has been heavy hitting, I think, because that's the part that, you know, we don't necessarily see or think about. And, and that's the part where it's like, wow, that that's unfair. That shouldn't have to happen. They shouldn't have to worry about, I shouldn't have to think about the different skin colors of my kids as to whether or not they can do something. I shouldn't have to be worried and stalling on wanting my 15 year old to get his permit because I know that's an extra thing. And I'm going to worry every time. I mean, I worry every time my kids leave the house, but I'm going to worry about things that I don't worry about with, you know, my other kids. And I, I wish that that wasn't reality, but I also don't think that, okay, this is going to get a little political, but defunding the police is the answer Mm -hmm. I don't think. And, you know, we went to a protest and all of the speakers, they just kept reiterating, even though there's always that group of people that are going to be there with their defund signs, but they were like, we do not support defunding the police. And, you know, they're like, we are Black Americans, but we do not, we are not in support of that. That is not the answer. And so I'm, I'm like, if they don't think it's the answer, I don't think it's the answer. Well, but, and if
0: anything, if we um, want better training, if we want more time spent, then we actually would have to add more funding. It's interesting. I would love to talk to Kia uh, Jones Baldwin, who's the, yeah, who has the. Uh, when you said that, she, that her, her husband's her husband. a police officer. So I'm like, I wonder, because she was like blue lives matter and black lives matter and white lives matter and this, you know, like that's they. I know that she must have a perspective on that, but um, oh, I'm sure. But yeah, I I agree, and it's not. It's I keep saying black and white, but I'm meaning it's not that clear. You know, there's just so much gray area, um, and there's just it, we're we're not dealing with one system, and that's why I love right. your story because it's easy to focus on police brutality. Like, yes, okay, like we need to make sure that uh, there's equality for all and that people are um, treated justly, but it doesn't come down to police. Like we're totally missing the mark for me. Um, Absolutely, like they're part of it, but um, how are we treating these people once they're going to court? How are we treating these people once they're in jail? How are we treating these people when they go to the ER? How are we treating these people when they're walking in our neighborhoods and we're in a church parking lot. So right. I think if we can bring it back to personal accountability, meaning what is our role? What can we do? I, I think that's, you know, looking in the mirror It's is difficult, but we all do have something that we can do. So I wonder, say there's somebody listening to this podcast that may be adopting a a Black son or daughter, and they want to listen. They want to be able to, um, like, I can just imagine that having a community of Black parents of saying, like, like, when I was in that, if I was in that situation that you were in of, like, should I let them out, should I do this, should I do, like, I would want to talk to some Black parents and say, like, what do y'all do? And, like, what do you, what do you think that I should do? Um, So are you able to find those resources? And do you think that that's something that uh, white families could find? Because I feel like it would be really sad if there was just no way to kind of get that community around you. And then you were really just like a white family with a black child. And then all you had was a white community around you.
1: Right. I think it's super important. That has been more difficult for us here. Um, We are actually in the process of just building some authentic, um, community, um, specifically with people of color. And that has been a neat thing to see happen. Um, we actually, I have a good friend that we met, um, through Starbucks. I worked there super part-time and she was actually uh, my old manager and she is married to a biracial man and he has wrestled with, he doesn't belong in the black community. he doesn't belong in the white community. So we've had some pretty open conversations about that. And he would love to mentor. And so it's just kind of happened in a, a neat way that him and Silas are very similar. And so I'm so thankful for that relationship. Um, and it's building and growing. Um, but it's very important that you seek it out. and And it's not weird, and the black community is gonna respect it. I've never had anybody think negatively. like we purposely, um, we don't take our daughter to, a um a white salon we take her to a black salon we don't take our son to he has dreads now and he does them himself but we have never taken him to a white salon ever um so little things that you can think about on how you can have that influence in their lives and it might be small like take them to you know we take our kids to ethiopian restaurants so that they have that for their you know even though i can cook some ethiopian food it's very important that we do that there's an Ethiopian community here that we've connected with um so just having them integrate in ways find a black mom that will give you advice um I had the privilege of going to adoptive adoption um, retreats every year for seven or eight years and there was a black mom there and she would regularly she was a speaker and she would She's so open. She talked about hair care. She talked about, you know, teaching your sons and what's appropriate and what's not, and all of those real things that she thinks about. But she's also just very nuts and bolts. She's super honest, um, raw and real. And, she, you know, she's like, yeah, no, my son is not going to wear his pants hanging down low. He's not. And so, you know, just having somebody that's willing to talk about those things is really, really important. And you can just bounce things off of them and, you know, even just teenage talk, you know, among black kids. And then you have the white kids that think they can talk like that too. Mm. And it's like, her point was, no, it's not okay ever. It's just not, Mm. don't do it. And so I learned a lot from her. Mm. And so I think it's imperative that you find it. And if you can't find it in your community, there are Facebook groups all over the place that will, you know, help you with your daughter's hair, or they will talk about, black culture or talk about what's appropriate and what's not. So if you don't have it, find it. That's the best advice I can give. Just you've got to make it a party.
0: Are there particular ways that you have been able or tried to bring awareness to your white friends and family?
1: Yeah. Most of them didn't know about that story. Wow. So That was a pretty big shock. Our friends did. We had a, I mean, we had a group of, you know, like our inner circle and then adoptive parents that we, that did know prior, but no, our family didn't know. And a lot of it was because I knew that it would be a difficult conversation and it, it's ongoing. <laughs> I mean, that's something, it has spurred conversation for sure. And I think it was a, a little bit of a tough, a harsh wake up call yeah. to, you know, cause they know our kids. And so if it could happen to them, it could happen to anybody. Yeah, it's
0: interesting when we have a personal connection. Yeah,
1: it changes things. It does.
0: And it's like, well, that is, all all of these people are just, you know, your neighbors or the people that you go to church with. Or, I mean, we, the personal connection really isn't that far. And it's funny when things happen close to home, we go like, well, this isn't right. And it's like, right, it hasn't been right. Right. Like now you get it because you can put a face and a name and, you know, the character and you've grown up with somebody or whatever. So I think that that is probably huge in the, not only the ripples that you've been able to make, you know, just through Facebook, um, but, but yeah, within your, your friends and family. So I ask everyone that comes on the podcast, how we end the foster care crisis. Now you are, you're an adoptive mom that you didn't go through foster care. So um, I think to be more,
1: I do have a, I have a pretty,
0: you're like, I have written this out, Rebecca.
1: (laughs) Hey, you asked me the question. You asked me an email. Okay. I'm ready. I'm so ready. I'm so ready. (laughs) I want to know because it's the reason
0: why we started the podcast was I, I, I wanted to listen. So yeah, let me know.
1: So I would totally, we have long said that eventually at some point we will probably foster, probably sooner than later. We have a lot of friends that are, um, are foster parents. I am actually a CASA for the state of Colorado. Mm-hmm. So while we haven't personally fostered, we have close friends that actively do. So I think personally, the church mm-hmm. is a good start. I think that the church has a big call to action. And it's um, at our church in Florida is actually the head of our adoption foster care ministry. And I think that that is a, a big part getting the church in action, putting their money and their action where their mouth is, and doing what they say. And, and if you're pro life, you better be pro foster care. Right, pro life after birth. Pro life period. Right. If you're pro-life, you better be actively seeking ways that you can get involved. And I'm not just saying they take kids into your home. I could go that far, but that's a, that's a hot topic. So I think that if you're not fostering, then you can support families that are. You can um, support organizations that um, help to license foster families. You can um, donate to help set up homes. There's so many Ways that you can get involved, and being a voice. Um, I'm a casa because we aren't fostering right now, but I get to be a voice for the kids, and that's my only job. My only job is to advocate for kids. There are not enough casas. Not I think every kid should have a casa. Those kids don't have they don't have much of a voice, and so having somebody that's not the foster parent that may have ulterior motives or the caseworker who just is overwhelmed and overburdened to have a person that sticks up for them. So I think that's a piece, get involved somewhere, stop making excuses and get involved. There's something that you can do. Um, even if it means not having kids in your home, but I do think that if you are able, then being a voice, being a bridge, again, I think that, are you on the be the bridge group on Facebook? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. It's, um, if they actually have, you have three months of silence. You can't post or anything on the yeah. group, which I think is great. Yeah. It's just about listening. But I think that an openness and an honesty to a work to keep kids in families. I think that's one piece. I think foster care is, there's such a huge need. And I think that if there's families that are willing to walk with families to get their kids back, I think is a huge piece because, a lot of times it's out of a socioeconomic status. Um, it's out of poverty and, and just a, a lack of knowledge. And I think that it's important to go into being a foster parent as wanting to unify families versus adopt. You know what I'm saying? There's always, you can adopt from foster care, but there's always a piece where parents, if they want their kids back, you need to be willing to walk the hard with them.
0: Right. Yeah. There's the, the intended purpose of the system is to, yeah. to rebuild families. and. And of course, the kids that have had parents' rights terminated, they certainly need to be adopted. But yes. yeah, I, I love your answer. And I love you saying, starting with um, churches, uh, we had Jason Palmer and his wife, who are foster parents, adoptive parents. And he said what triggered him to adopt or to start uh, fostering was he was in the car and heard some statistic that was like, if every if every church had just one family fostering that there'd be no foster care crisis. And, um, he was like, that's insane. And he got like all angry at like these church members. And then he's like, what am I doing? Yeah. You know? So then he did, he turned around and started fostering and he's adopted kids and he has a podcast as well, uh, called foster care and unparalleled journey. So that's interesting. And my goal in the near future is so stable moments is a mentorship program, it matches up a community mentor with a kid. And right now a horse to do equine assisted learning to develop life skills. Um, And they meet for one hour a week for 10 months. So the whole school year. And then they they can do it again and again and again, for however many years they need to And a lot of times, we will have like, we want male mentors to be with boys that don't have father figures. We want, you know, different races to be with kids. If, if the kids in a community where they don't have, um, they don't see, you know, black men often, and there's a black kid in our um, program, we'll match them up so that they can have a mentor. But what I've been working on is what we found is I thought the horses was like the magic and we found the horses isn't the magic. Horses are really cool and horse people love horses, but the the magic is actually mentorship. It's the kids showing up and seeing a person over and over again that wants to hang out with them, that's interested in them, that pours into them, that builds them up and builds their identity. So I'm, I've already done the hard work because creating a program with horses is way harder than creating one without. So I can take the same structured model with the plans of care and the color-coded activities and all of that but launch it to churches and churches could have mentorship programs because really like if you can't all right if a church stands up and says we have this many kids that are in foster care and we need you to foster a kid or we need you to support and make lasagna for a family okay so there's lasagna or take a kid into my like it's a huge gap right but if you say right you mentor a kid for one hour a week so this family over here is going to actually foster a kid are the other families in this in this uh, church willing to show up one hour a week so that they can get a break and they can be integrated into the community? I feel like more people would foster if they felt like their church was running a mentorship program where a bunch of kids come from the community and they get matched up with a mentor, and the whole community, the whole church is understanding about trauma and what these kids go through and how these families need support. I th- My thought is that it would bring the issue more to the community. And also these mentors would start seeing like, you know, maybe we could foster because that's what happened. My original program, I had mentors. I have mentors that used to be mentors that are now foster parents and adoptive parents because they're like, oh, like it didn't make it so scary for me because I was able to have time with a kid before I, you know, signed on the dotted line or something. So,
1: right. I think that's awesome. Um, I would totally be supportive of helping whatever you need for that. That's super, super cool. Um, and I know our little tiny community in Florida would be a great, my daughter's actually in Florida right now. so.
0: Well, as soon um, as I have it ready to launch, I would love to get some feedback of how this would work in a church setting and other community-based organizations. But I just feel like the church has so much to offer. I
1: think our, I think our Florida church would be even, it would be a good, um, Pilot, yeah, I do because we have a lot of foster families there. Yeah, that's really
0: exciting because I know that I God keeps calling me like that. That's the next, that's the next thing. Break into like you don't need horses and people can meet with kids and it's really structured so that you actually work on individual life skill goals that that kid needs. And I bring my social work background to it, but I don't make it clinical. It's just people hanging out with kids in a way that develops life skills that hopefully. They'll make healthy transitions into adulthood.
1: Yeah. I think there would be a good, um, that you would, there'd be a lot of good connections to really even spearhead that, to make it take off too.
0: Oh, I'm, um, that excites me. So, um, okay. Well, I absolutely love that answer and it's ignited again, some of my passion to move, move even farther to help more and more kids. So, um, this has been really enlightening. You know, I think that it all comes down to, we need to listen, feel okay. Asking some questions. Yes. And if you're not getting answers, keep asking. Um, and if you feel silly or um, wrong, you know, preface your question with this might be, this might not be the right way to put this. And please, I'm looking to get enlightened. Like, please, um, you know, so that people don't feel.
1: And be willing to be, be willing to be wrong. Mm. I think that's a big part too. be willing to say, I'm sorry, be willing to say, I'm still learning, be willing to be willing to be wrong. It's okay. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And thank people when they open your perspective um, for sure. You know, we all are always learning. So, all right, well, this was really helpful. Thank you so much. I think our listeners will love this. I know that we already have a bunch of foster adoptive parents that do have interracial families, and I know that they also, you know, there's plenty of people that are looking to foster, looking to adopt, and who knows, they might get a call at 3 a.m., and now they have a, a child of another race sitting in their home, and so these are the types of things that will help prepare them.
1: Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, have a good day. Bye. Hope you guys really
0: enjoyed that episode. I thought Erica was great and brought up so many good points, points that none of us could know without having her actual experience. And it reminded us all that we need to listen. And I get it as a white woman, I often feel like I need to choose my words really carefully. And I know that words matter, but you can't be so afraid to say anything that you don't ask critical questions to educate yourself. And more importantly, listen, figure out an a avenue where you can listen to women of color and listen to people of color and understand their experience in the world. Believe it or not, we don't have to have an opinion. We don't have to formulate an opinion before we have gotten all the information that we need. And right now, most white people don't have all of the information that they need to form an opinion. So let's, let's do that time, let's do that research, and let's listen. All right, you heard me talk about wanting to bring stable moments to churches. If you happen to have a church family that you feel like stable moments would be a great location for, reach out to me, Rebecca at stablemoments.com. And I would just like to start compiling kind of a list of contacts so that I could work with some churches on probably a pilot program so that I could get some feedback and I could really work one on one with them to make sure that it can be successful and sustainable. As always, please leave an Apple podcast review. If you can, share this episode with anyone you think it might help. And I will see you guys next week.